0: John chapter number 12, our young people have been reading through the book of John over the summer, and a bunch of them finished up this past week. What, a, what an encouragement that is. It blesses my heart to hear about our young people reading the Word of God. If we can teach our young people to love the Bible, we're going to save them a whole world of heartache. And uh, there's a lot of people that struggle in their Christianity because they don't read the Bible, and they don't love the Bible. And you're not going to be a Bible Christian without the Bible, amen? Amen and uh, how much trouble and heartache you could have been uh, saved and spared of, and I could have been spared of if we had learned at a younger age to love the Bible and to read it and to be faithful to it and uh, to allow it to have a larger place in our lives. So I was blessed to hear about that endeavor and to see so many of our young people faithful in that, and I, I I encourage them to continue on in that. Don't stop with the book of John. There's There's a book after that and a book after that and a book after that. Keep reading and studying the Bible and make it a part of your daily life. Uh, make sure that you have a daily relationship with the Word of God. And so, Really, in my study of the Word of God, I I asked the Lord, I said, God, I want you to give me a message out of the book of John, just to encourage and compliment what these young people have been doing. And I believe the Lord has done that tonight. John chapter number 12, and I'd like to be in reading in verse number 12. John chapter number 12, verse number 12. If you're uh, familiar with your Bible, then you know, and I trust our young people know, that this is at the close of our Lord's earthly ministry. And uh, the book of John has more to say about the closing days of our Lord's earthly ministry than any other of the gospel records. And so uh, even though we are just a, a few days before the death of our Lord, uh, we find ourselves all the way back in chapter 12. And uh, the, the closing days comp- uh, comprise much of uh, this closing portion, half of the book of John. Verse number 12 says this, "...on the next day much people that were come to the feast..." when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet Him, and cried, Hosanna, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus, when He had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy King cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not His disciples at the first, But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said signifying what death he should die. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. I pray that you'd help us as we approach your word to approach it with the right spirit and with the desire for understanding. Lord, may we be uh, uh, illuminated uh, by this truth and may Christ be magnified by what's said tonight. And I pray that our hearts would be stirred in such a way as would bring you glory. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people. I pray that you'd honor it tonight with your presence. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, these uh, chapters from chapter 12 onward of the book of John really detail for us the closing days of our Lord's earthly ministry. And John gives more attention to these days than any other of the gospel writers. It's apparent given the fact that several chapters are occupied with disclosing the details of what happened in these days. But these days begin really with our text that's set before us tonight. And there's an interesting instance that happens here that I want to draw your attention to. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus enters in Jerusalem as was prophesied in the book of Zechariah on the back of a donkey. And that the common people receive Him well. They laud Him and praise Him as the Son of David. The Pharisees respond to this with their typical disdain and spite and vitriol. They're angry at the fact that their grip upon the common people is slipping away from them. And they even sort of spit it at one another in verse 19. Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. And then they make this statement. Behold, the world is gone after him. There's an example of this truth in verse 20 and 21. The Bible says there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him. And listen to what they said. Sir, we would see Jesus. This is a phrase that has uh, sounded, it has pealed like a bell throughout the ages since the Apostle John penned these words down, this record of what took place. For in many ways, I think, it sets the tone for the days that we're living in. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, listen, I understand how wicked our world is. I understand that we live in a world that hates God and hates the things of God, hates the people of God, hates the Word of God. But I'm afraid that in these days, we have far too much yielded to this spirit of, of, of finalism, of doom, of fatalism. And we've done forgot that there's a world out there. Listen, I know there's some in the world that hate God, want nothing to do with Him, But we're also surrounded by a world that's longing for something. We're surrounded by, I know there's some that don't want to see Him, but I'm glad there's still some out there that want to see Him. I understand we live in a hate-filled world. I understand we, we say all the time in, in this part of the country that we live in a gospel-hardened part of the country. I'm not sure that that's true. I, I don't know that uh, quite as many people know what even the gospel is, as we would like to suggest do. Uh, but we have convinced ourselves that, that evangelizing, taking the gospel... Causing men to see Jesus is a hopeless endeavor in these days. And when I read my Bible, I don't see that that's the case. I see that there's still a broken world hungering for peace, hungering for meaning, hungering for purpose, hungering to know God, and they just don't know how to get to Him. In fact, the truth that was true on this day in John's Gospel is still true today. There are some out there that they love nothing more than to see Jesus And what do they do when they want to see him? They come to those that already know him to find out how they can get to him. I want you to notice three simple thoughts in our text tonight. And then uh, we'll go and have some fellowship, I suppose, over in life. So that usually involves some tasty snack. I don't know what it involves tonight. Uh, Probably uh, not a punch in the mouth. Probably a tasty snack. But I want you to notice when we read this passage, there are sort of three thoughts that arrest my attention. I want to say a few words about it very briefly this evening. I want you to notice with me, number one, the seeker's petition. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean these Greeks that come to Jesus. Uh, this was evidently a harbinger of the closing days of our Lord's ministry because the Bible says that it is in response to these Greeks coming to Jesus that Jesus begins to talk about His death, burial, and resurrection. When you consider dispensationally the purpose of the ministry of our Lord on this earth, it would seem as though that the primary purpose and function of it was to be the Savior to Israel, to bear witness to them of the righteousness of God, of the uh, incompleteness of the law for the redemption of their souls, and that they could not save themselves, but that He as their Savior had come to do for them what they could not do for themselves. Uh, He came as their Messiah. He came as their King. He came as their Savior. And they could have as a nation accepted Him. But we find that is not how they responded. Instead, the nation responds by rejecting Him. It was not so much the common folks, although they were not entirely exempt from the guilt of this, But we find that the Pharisees, as the ruling class and as the voices for the people, the representatives of the people, that they had rejected the Messiah. They had called him a uh, wine-bibber, a gluttonous man. Uh, They had claimed that he was of impure lineage and impure birth. And in fact, finally, they even attributed his miracles to the work of the devil himself. When they finally do this, the Lord Jesus turns His attention away from Israel as a nation and turns instead to His ministration through salvation through His sacrificial death. And it would seem as though this trend that begins really in many ways in the middle of the book of Matthew sort of reaches its culmination here in John chapter number 12 when we actually find Greeks. And the Bible doesn't say they were Greek proselytes. The Bible doesn't say they were Jews that had dwelt in Cretia. The Bible just says they were Greeks. In other words, these were Gentiles. These were pagans. These were men that had no true concept of God. But there in their land of pagan darkness, they had heard about a man that could raise people from the dead that had not the imagined, fake, false power of their pagan priests but rather had the true, real power of God. And they had come all the way to Jerusalem to find this man because they had a hunger in their soul for something real. These are the type of men that are uttering this in verse 21. Sir, we would see Jesus. And it reminds me of three inexorable truths about a lost and broken world. Number one, I want you to notice with me the dissatisfaction of these people. What had brought them there? Well, verse 18 says, For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. That miracle is the raising of Lazarus. Uh, The Pharisees, their response to this is not to wrestle back their influence, from the Lord Jesus, but just to throw their hands up in helplessness. They said, Perceive ye how you prevail nothing. And then they even say this, Behold, the world is gone after him. I love this scene because here we find the, the stranglehold that the Pharisees had upon the common people to be slipping away. And they're just utterly helpless to do anything about it. You know why? Because listen, when the real power of God shows up in somebody's life, dead religion loses its grip on them. Uh, Why were these people coming to Jesus? Because the Pharisees couldn't help them. Because dead religion couldn't help them. Why were these Greeks coming to Jesus? Because their pagan religion couldn't help them. Can I tell you, we don't like to imagine it because it indicts us, but there's a whole lot of people in the world sick of the world. They've learned, man. They've learned that bottle don't give them peace. They've learned that needle don't give them happiness. They've learned that that stranger's bed doesn't give them peace. And, and they're sick of it, man. They're over it. Now, listen, you might not go down and find them at the five-star restaurant, but you go down and walk the park and start talking to people. You get out and start walking the shopping centers. You go out and seek those out that oftentimes in other circumstances you'd be trying to avoid, and you'll find people that have learned this world offers no peace to them. Why would they even come to Jesus in the first place? Because they realized the world couldn't help them. And we like to imagine everybody's entrenched in their unbelief. And maybe there's some that are. Undoubtedly, there are some that are. But hey, there's some that, that the devil's chain has started to get a little loose on them. And they've started to realize that nothing that this world offers gives them any true peace. I see the dissatisfaction of these people. But then verse 20, I'm reminded of the disorientation of these people. Verse 20, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. Again, the language seems to denote not Greek proselytes and not uh, Jews that were dwelling in Grecia, but I'm talking about rank pagans, people that had no concept who the true God was. But here's what they had learned. They weren't getting no help at their feasts. So they was going to go to the Jews' feast to learn who this God of Israel was and who to them this prophet Jesus was. It's interesting because though they are misguided, does not their misguided attempt at religion suggest to us that they were not satisfied in the dead pagan religion that they had been dwelling in? I want to be very careful right now. God's very specific about how he wants to be worshipped. In fact, he's so specific about it that he gave us a book to teach us how to do it. And I'm not in any way suggesting that, that unbiblical attempts at worship are somehow sanctioned and grandfathered in by God in His loving kindness. God's very specific about who He is, what He desires, and what He expects out of us. But I'm just saying this, we can look around at this world and grow disgusted at the fact that the religion in this world is so corrupt, confused, and muddled. Or we could recognize that the whole reason that the world is even dabbling in their confused religion in the first place is because somewhere deep in their soul, they know there's a God in heaven and they have some desire to know who He is. It's not to suggest that the Muslim goes to heaven because they're a sincere Muslim or the Buddha uh, goes to wherever Buddhas go, uh, the Buddha heaven, amen? They don't go nowhere. They come back as something either better looking or uglier than what they were before. Uh, that somehow God's going to just sort of give them a pass in. But I am saying this, the fact that this world is even so enamored with religion in its broken form, in its bankrupt form, should tell us this, that this is a world that there are some that desire to know who God is truly. You'll run into them, you'll talk to them, there'll be these people, you find a lot of Roman Catholics this way, you'll ask them, you'll say, now, uh, do you know God? And they'll say, well, I'm a Christian. And you'll say, well, what does that mean? And they'll say, well, I'm a Catholic. And you'll ask them, you'll say, well, you know, what does Catholicism mean? They can't tell you. You'll say, well, you know, uh, how do you believe you get saved? They'll say, what's saved? Uh, You'll ask them, you know, why do you believe what you believe? They'll say, I don't know. But they'll go to mass. They'll wear their mask. Ro- uh, mask. They'll wear their rosary. They'll say their Hail Marys. They'll do their penance. Why are they doing that? Because they recognize instinctively that there's something missing in their life, and they're craving something to paper over that hole in their soul. When I see these Greeks coming to Jesus, I mean, it's easy to look at them and, and, and scorn their, their misguided notion. They didn't know what they were worshipping. They didn't know what worship even meant. They didn't know uh, the significance of all these feasts. They probably had no concept of how to approach God. But they were coming to God in the best way they knew how. And instead of Jesus scorning that, he sees that as opportunity to disclose who he is unto them. In other words, we see the disorientation of these people and then finally notice their desire. The same came therefore to Philip. People have asked why Philip and Philip was a Greek name. They probably just knew that he had a Greek name and thought maybe he would uh, in some way uh, petition on their behalf. And by the way, you should not be dismissive. When lost people reach out to you, and I'm not talking about them trying to involve you in their sin, when you've got that lost coworker and you find that they're just hanging around at break time where you're at, you ought to pay attention to that. When you've got that lost neighbor and you find that every time you're out working in the yard, they're out working in the yard and they want to talk, don't ignore that. You know what that is? A lot of times you're the only one they know that's a Christian and they're trying to find some way to broach a conversation with you about God. They're hoping it'll just happen. Why'd they come to Philip? They thought, well, maybe Philip is a, as a Greek, maybe he'll be willing to help us in some way. It's not that they really knew Philip, but they were looking for some opportunity to find some entrance to Jesus. They came therefore to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, and here's what they wanted, man. Here's all they looked for. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, what did that mean to them? Well, it meant, number one, they wanted to meet Him. They wanted to know Him. Number two, they wanted a clear picture. They had heard about Him, but now they wanted to see Him for themselves. You know, again, I maybe I'm just, I don't know, maybe I woke up in a good mood and I'm just too optimistic tonight. I don't know. But I, I just, sometimes I get sick of this fatalistic attitude that people have nowadays. Preacher, oh, the world's so broken, we can't do nothing, nobody wants to get saved. Hey, no sinner ever wanted to get saved until they was convicted by the Holy Ghost. Listen, I don't know about you. God didn't fall off His throne and give up the saving business. And we can spend all our time focusing on those that are probably never going to get saved because they have such vitriol and hatred towards the things of God. Although God can save even them and has done it many times. We can recognize that, yeah, there's a whole broken world out there and here's what they want more than anything. They want to see Jesus. Uh, they, listen, they don't want your religion. They want to see Jesus. Uh, listen, uh, they, they, they don't want to be a part of your social club. They want to see Jesus. What they need is not to be converted to your perspective. They need Jesus. That's what they need more than anything. So I see the seekers' petition. Number two, I see the servants' reaction. Verse 22. The Bible says, just simply, Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now, you're thinking, preacher, what could we learn from that verse? I mean, it's just a simple verse that tells us what they did and how they responded. But, you know, it's the servant's reaction here that strikes my notice. It's, it's that that strikes my interest. Because in these short words, we find a beautiful picture of what our heart's reaction should be to a broken world in need of Christ. Notice, number one, that Philip, he answered their cry. Those two words, Philip, cometh. It could have said Philip did nothing. But instead, it says Philip coming. They sent word to Philip. said, we want to see Jesus. He could have said, sorry, I don't have time for you. He could have said, who do you think you are? Why do you think you would be able to go to Jesus? But instead, we find him stopping, pausing, taking the time, showing the interest, responding to the opportunity that is set before him. Wonder how often we spend more time praying for opportunities than seizing opportunities that God's putting in front of us. Lord, give me opportunities, give me opportunities. Oh, there goes, there, there, there goes the gas station guy. Lord, give me opportunities, give me opportunities. There goes the person bagging my groceries. Lord, give me opportunities. Lord, I just want an opportunity. Lord, I just want one person I can witness to. I'm sorry, bank teller. You're going to have to wait. I'm praying for somebody to witness to. I like Philip. You know why? He just he just jumped. He just said, "Okay, you want to go to Jesus? Okay, all right. I'll talk to you. All right, I'm right here. I'll help you." See, he responded, and it may seem simple, it may seem elementary, it may seem uh, you know, in many ways beneath us to recognize it even. But I'd say the first thing we got to say about Philip is he at least answered their cry. He didn't just say, "Well, somebody else will help him." <laughs> Somebody else will help. You, you ever, I was talking to somebody about going to Home Depot today, or they were talking to me about, it. I'm too poor to go to Home Depot, but they, they were talking to me about going to Home Depot. And, uh, I hate going to Home Depot. I mean, if I had a bunch of money, it'd be okay. But I, you know, I was telling them, I said, you know, they, they said, do you find yourself just drawn to Home Depot? And, uh, I <laughs> weird conversations you have. And I said, I said, I used to, you know, used to when stuff wasn't crazy, I did. I said, but now if I win, I'd be like, oh, man, it's payday. Let's go to Home Depot. And I'd come out and I'd be like, look at this two by six that I bought. Here's my two by six. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I had to find a cosigner for it. But here's my two by six. But one of the things I hate about—and it's not always this way, you know—but but, but I, the, a lot of times when you're going at Lowe's, Home Depot, it ain't even a home improve any place, any place in retail now, today, post COVID world we live in. Sometimes, you know, you'll be walking down the aisle and somebody will come walking towards you, and, and I'm talking about a worker will come walking towards you, and you have that moment where you lock eyes, and they know you have a question, and you know they have no intention of answering it. <laughs> But but they always have they always have this this look like maybe somebody else will help you you know maybe somebody else will help you you know I'm afraid we've become maybe somebody else will help you Christians yeah. I pray God send somebody their way what you got a five o'clock appointment you can't witness to them? Yeah. your your calendar too full I mean we got to say this about Philip man when he saw an opportunity he responded. He didn't wait for somebody else. He responded himself. He answered their cry. Notice number two. I like this. He enlisted a co-part. The Bible says Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. Now I can't give you an answer as to all the reasons why Philip went and told Andrew. Uh, Andrew is 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 of no relation to him. Andrew is the brother of, of Peter. He didn't go and find his own brother Nathaniel, but. Maybe Andrew's the first person he finds. Maybe he felt like in some ways it would strengthen their request when they went to Jesus if Andrew was with them. But for whatever the reason, I mean, let's just set aside the why for just a moment and recognize this. He saw this matter of bringing their petition to Jesus as being something that needed more than one person. He said, if I've got to get somebody else involved in doing this, I'll get somebody else involved in doing this. And can I tell you that very often, in fact, the majority of the time, witnessing involves more than just one person. I'm not, And I'm not even just talking about the whole thing, having a wingman, somebody keep the kids quiet and kick the dog or something. I'm talking about usually when you're witnessing to someone, there's somebody else that's already been, been, been planting in that ground, been watering in that ground. And oftentimes when you're witnessing to someone, you may never see the result of it, but somebody else is going to come along later and scoop up that harvest. And Philip did not begrudge that. He recognized that that very often this is an all-hands-on-deck process, and he was willing to enlist somebody else in this process. I also like the fact, and let's just go ahead and preach it. Look at the next phrase. It says, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. So he did three things. One, he answered their cry. Two, he enlisted a co-partner. Three, he sought Christ. He said, all right, we know what they need, but it's not enough for us to just tell him, hey, he's right here, why don't we just introduce them? Why don't we just go and tell Jesus there's some people here that would like to see you. And knowing Jesus, I bet he'll take the time to just talk to him himself. You know, it reminds me, because here's what they're doing, right? They're talking to God. When they go and tell Jesus, they're talking to God. And it reminds me when he goes and gets Andrew, here's what he's doing. He's getting somebody else to come and talk to God with him about this matter. Sort of like when we're witnessing to folks and it's not a bad idea to say, hey, I want you to pray with me about this person. One of my favorite things to hear is whenever people in prayer request time are mentioning, hey, pray for so-and-so, I witness to him, and I want you to pray for him. Pray for him by name. I love that. You know why that's biblical? It's biblical that we pray for those that we have witnessed to. I know the Calvinists want to tell you there's no example of anyone praying for anyone to be saved in the Bible. They're going to have to argue with Paul about that because Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And on and on, time and time again, what do we find in the Gospels? We find people bringing others to Jesus and requesting Jesus to work in their life. If that's not analogous to prayer, I don't know what is. Fathers bringing their children to Jesus and saying, heal them. Uh, The spouses bringing their spouse to Jesus and saying, heal them. Uh, People bringing their friends to Jesus and saying, Jesus, heal them. What are we doing when we pray for lost loved ones? We're bringing them to Jesus and saying, Jesus, heal them. Work in their life. Show them their need of you. He sought Christ. He knew that he didn't have the ability to satisfy these people on his own. And what a paltry thing it would have been when they said we would see Jesus if he had simply said, let me describe him to you. Instead of saying, let me introduce him to you. I'm afraid much of Christianity has devolved into simply let me describe him to you. The, the, the speculative study of, of theology as a principled field. Instead of saying, why don't I just introduce you to him? Why don't I just show you how you can know him yourself? Listen, I I think it's great. I I like having good church and praising and worshiping and shouting her out and doing all those things. I I love that. I mean, I I enjoy that. But, you know, uh, you can have a good shouting meeting and not, you know, a a lost person sit there and never once learn how to get born again. That's all right. I knew that wasn't going to go over well when I said it. I'm not disappointed. (laughs) I love having shouting meetings. I, I enjoy it, but. You know, it's one thing to shout about Him, but you know what's awful good? To introduce people to Him. A lot of times we allow our soul winning to devolve into merely marathon bragging sessions in front of the lost about Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. One of the great ways you can spark interest Is to brag on Jesus in front of lost people. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not embarrassed about that. I'm not discouraging you from that. You ought to be talking to everybody, saved and lost alike, about how good your God is to you. But you know what would also help them? If you'd say, let me just introduce you to Him. I could, I could spend my whole life trying to tell you how good He is, but let me just introduce you to Him and then you're gonna know how good He is. I like the servant's reaction here, man. I, I love it. So I, I see here the seeker's petition, the servant's reaction. But then notice how Jesus responds. Verse number 25. Now, Jesus says a lot of things in response to this, but I've picked just four things I want us to notice because I think that what the Lord's doing, He's dealing with some things more broadly about His ministry and about uh, about the plan of the Father for His life and and, and even the plan of salvation for, for humanity. But peppered within this, I think, are some instructions that are given to people like Philip regarding these that are coming, seeking him. Now, in other words, their approach to Jesus prompted certain truths for the Savior to disclose. Let's notice the Savior's instructions. Look at verse 25. He says this, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Say, preacher, there's a broken world in need of Christ. What can I do about it? Well, notice number one, the selflessness that is needed. Our Lord has given himself as an example of this with the parable about the, the corn falling into the ground and, and, and bearing a harvest. But now he just, he just puts shoe leather on it and points it right at the disciples. And he says, listen, if you want your life to count for something, you've got to make it not all about you, but all about me. If you will make your life all about me, I will tend to the things that concern you. And he says, if you spend your whole life trying to claw and preserve it and build it and make it something that you can be proud of and that you can relish in and that you can uh, relax in, then you're going to find that that life is going to be meaningless and empty. But if instead you be willing to take that life and cast it on the altar of service for me, you'll find that there and there alone are you ever going to get anything Close to a life that is worth living. Can I tell you one of the reasons that we struggle in witnessing, and I don't even want to say in soul winning. Now, I I endorse that term soul winning. I'm not scared of it. But I when I say in witnessing, because sometimes this this idea of soul winning gets devolved into a numbers thing and 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 performance based and 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 results oriented. But I, listen, you you can't always guarantee what kind of harvest that, that you're going to have, but you can guarantee a good planting season. You can guarantee you're going to get the the seed out there. And part of the reason we struggle in that endeavor is because of the great selflessness that's needed to do it. Rarely, rarely are you going to feel like witnessing when it's time to witness. I'm just going to say that again. Rarely are you going to feel like witnessing when it's time to witness. Most of the time, it'd be easy to ignore it. Most of the time, it'd be easy to find an excuse not to. Most of the time you have something better to be doing. And so what's going to have to happen? When the opportunity presents itself, you're going to have to set aside whatever other distractions there might be and devote yourself to that cause, to that calling, to that purpose that's right in front of you. Uh, we preached, I don't know, forever ago, but we was talking about time. And, and you know, it's funny how I men use these three phrases. You'll hear people when they talk about allotting or apportioning time to things, sometimes they'll say, you know, well, I've got to make time to do that. And that's a funny phrase. You know, nobody can make time. Only God can make time. We don't make time. And then sometimes people say, well, preacher, I need to find time to do this. Funny thing about it, time ain't hiding. You ain't going to find no extra time somewhere. If extra time could be found, some preacher that was on his third, this is my final point, would have found that time. Well, I mean, we would have found it. I'm telling you, we've looked for it. But here here I think is the, is, is the better way to say it. I'm going to take time. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're ever going to spend time on anything, you're going to have to take it from something else to do it. I see the selflessness that is needed. We've got to take the time. Then notice the service that's needed. Verse 26, he says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. I like this. The service that is needed is not the service to the lost. It's the service to him. If any man serve me, let him follow me. One of the great banes of my existence growing up as 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 a son was that dreaded responsibility of holding the flashlight you all ever have to do that son I still have PTSD from it. trauma having to hold the flashlight you know and uh, it was rough I mean there's a, the, the the moments when my relationship with my father almost just just devolved into into utter fisticuffs was moments when I had to hold the flashlight and I get it now because I got boys, and sometimes I ask them to hold the flashlight. And there's something I, I don't know. I, the, the, I think you have to reach the age of 22, 23 years old before you you become really skilled at the art of holding a flashlight. So I, I understand that, but but. I, you know, one of the things my dad, I, I'd have to hold the flashlight and, and and he, I'd be working there and you know how kids do. You know, I, what do I have that I'm going to miss? I'll find something. This is a flashlight. No, this is a flashlight. I'd be holding the flashlight and I don't know why. I, it's just something about it. You know, he'd be working right here and you, I'd be holding the flashlight and then all of a sudden there's something over there. <laughs> I want to look at, you know, or I'd be holding the flashlight and it, it'd bounce and I'd think that looks funny. I'm just going to keep doing that. You know? But, you know, here's the thing. If I was really going to help him, here's what I had to do. I had to follow him. I wasn't really helping him if I wasn't following where he was working. My job, wanting, it wasn't dad noticed I was bored and wanted to give me a flashlight to play with. I was there to do a job. And if I was going to help him, I had to follow him. Imagine how worthless a servant is who won't even follow his master so that when he needs something... He's there to tend to his needs. This is very explicit language, very clear, very basic, very practical that the Lord's given. He's saying, you want to serve me? You going have to follow me. Here's why you're going to have to follow me. That where I am, there shall also my servant be. Then he says this, if any man serve me, him will my father honor. The service that is needed in reaching a broken world is not the service to a broken world but rather it's the service to the one who can heal the brokenness of the world. See, we've got this thing all wrong. We think that He's our servant helping us be awesome. But in fact, we're His servant that is facilitating the ministration of His will in this world. We're His hands. We're His feet. We're we're His voice in this world and so here's what's needed that we devote ourselves entirely and wholly to ministering to him and his desire for our life you want you want to be an effective witness devote yourself to pleasing christ and then guess what's going to happen when you ought to keep your mouth shut you'll keep your mouth shut when you ought to speak you'll speak when you need to know who to witness to he'll put you in the place where you need to be to witness to the person that needs to be witnessed to so what are you getting at preacher make it all about him And you'll find that's the most effective way. Then notice the steadfastness that is needed. Christ shows us this by example. Verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. And then I I love what he says. Verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. In other words, he says, I have reached a place of stress, of strain. I have reached a place where... The human part of me would shrink away from the task at hand. And he looks around and he says, what should I do? Run away? It got difficult. Should I run away? It got painful. Should I run away? He says, why would I run away? I came to be used in this way. And so then, then he I like this, then he shows us where our focus really should be. He looks up towards heaven and he says, Father, glorify thy name. That's what I want you to do. Lord, glorify your name. That's what I desire out of my life is that you, Lord, would glorify my name. And here's what's needed in our life. We need steadfastness. Often we're willing to serve God when it seems profitable and comfortable. But rarely will effective ministry be comfortable. Most of the time, Curtis Hutchins used to say it this way, nobody ever did anything for God that mattered with spare change and spare time. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to sometimes be in the face of difficulty. It's going to sometimes be in the face of all hell setting itself against you. But what are you going to do? Run and quit? Did you get into this thing? Are you going out and witnessing to people because you think it's a fun hobby? No, because they're on their way to hell and they need salvation. So instead, you say, well, you know, here's what I'll pray. I'll pray, God, make it easy for me. That's not what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify thy name. Lord, whatever it takes for you to get glory from me. And then notice, and I'm done tonight, verse 32. He says this, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signifying what death he should die. Now, the word uh, all that's given here is being used, I think, categorically. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, certainly I do believe he'll save any and all that come unto him. I want to be abundantly clear when I say that. He tasted death for every man but he's speaking this in light of Greeks coming unto him. And this was a radical notion to his Jewish followers and to his Jewish disciples. And he says this, if I be lifted up from the earth, here's what's going to happen. It won't just be Jews that come unto me, but it'll be all men that come unto me. Now, of course, he's speaking very dispensationally here and very specifically here about what God is doing through the plan of redemption, but Can I just make a practical application of this? And that's that if men are going to be drawn unto Him, He's going to have to be lifted up first. By the way, you'll find even our Lord sort of used this language in a similar fashion in John chapter number 3 when He said, As the serpent was lifted up upon the pole, so shall also the Son of Man be. In other words, He used it in almost a... uh, Though it is explicit in in speaking about His death, He also used it in almost a figurative way regarding the, the... Exaltation and the amplification of who He is. You say, Preacher, how? How do I witness? Well, you gotta lift up the Lord. Make much of Him. I like how John said it. He must increase. I must decrease. Preacher, how, how do I reach? A, I, I, I'm convinced now, Preacher, I, I believe you that there's a broken world that needs Christ and, and that will receive Christ. But, but Preacher, how do I witness to Him? Just take Jesus and lift Him up to Him. Now, Let let me be very clear what I mean by that. Tell Him who He is. He's the the Son of God. He's the Savior of men. He is is God in the flesh. Lift Him up. Show Him. Like Paul said about the church at Galatia, that before their eyes, Christ had been set forth evidently crucified among them. What, What he's saying is that I preach the gospel clearly to you. Tell the world who He is. Tell the world what He can do. Tell the world why He can do it. And tell the world how they can come unto Him and know Him. In other words, it's not about the promotion of our brand. There's a lot of preachers out there today. They're about the promotion of their brand. How do you know it, preacher? Well, because they're wearing their windbreakers with their name on it. and the. the... Got to get my brand out there. Let me tell you, my brand says J-E-S-U-S. You want to know what's worth knowing about me? It's Him. You want to know if there's anything uh, about me worth knowing? It's Him. Anything about my life that's redeemed? It's Him. Anything that's valuable? It's Him. If we're going to be a witness, here's what we need to do. We need to lift up Him. Lift up Him. Press forth Him. Here's what the world really needs. They don't need to know how cool you are. They need to know how glorious He is. They need to see Him and see Him clearly. Oh, we can we can bury our head in the sand and tell ourselves, Oh, preacher, I don't even witness what good it will do. Well, sinners might get saved. I think that's pretty good. Aren't you glad that whoever won you to Christ didn't say that? What good would it do? What good would it do? Uh, listen, I, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a preacher? somebody got to tell them. Somebody's got to tell them. You got in because somebody told you. So not me, preacher. I read it in the gospel track. Well, who wrote the track? Not me, preacher. I was listening to some preacher on the radio. Yeah, some preacher, a person on the radio. I was alone in my bedroom when I got saved. Reckon wonder how I knew to do that. Well, because some preacher had told me the gospel. Somebody had shared it with me. We can tell ourselves the world that that, that God's done saving people and that the world's too broken and we're all led to sin and miserable and mopey and give up and pack it in and just try to make the best casserole for potluck and call that Christianity. Or we can recognize we still have a calling in this world. We can go out and try to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would see Jesus. If it's up to you, will they? Will they? I hope that they would. Let's bow together tonight. As the musician comes to play, now would be a good time. All those promises you've been making God during the preaching, now would be a good time to come and affirm them to Him. Come to Him and say, now, Lord, I meant that when I said I'd do that. I meant that. Now would also be an easy moment to double back on those and not see anything change in your life. But now would be a good time to meet Him in the altar and say, now, Lord, I want... I want in, when I told you I'd witness to that loved one, I wasn't lying. I really will, Lord, by your grace and by your help. Lord, when I told you I, I was gonna, this week, that I was gonna witness to that coworker, I meant that, Lord. I wasn't just, I wasn't just saying it, I meant it. When I told you that I was gonna witness to that, 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 that person at school, I, I meant that when I said that, Lord, and I'm, I'm committing myself to it, I'm really gonna do it. Now would be a good time to double down. And to make those, those assurances and to make those commitments before the Lord. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.